begin the sermon today by telling you something that God hates. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, wow, really, Jared? You're going to, uh, out of everything that you could bring to us this morning, you're going to start with that, something so negative and unattractive as hate? I mean, isn't that the, wet, the message of the world around us? Well, yes, I'm going to, and I do so for two reasons. First, seeing what God hates magnifies what he loves. Seeing what God hates magnifies what he loves. And second, seeing what God hates, probably more than anything else in the world, is exactly what is being exposed in our passage this morning. Friends, God hates human pride. He hates pride. He hates it when we boast in ourselves and not in him. He hates when we take the credit for what he alone can do and has done. He hates when we lean on our own understanding instead of trusting his wisdom. He hates it when we feel sufficient in our own power and our own strength and not in his. He hates our unwillingness to admit our weaknesses and our need for him. Simply put, if you're wondering what is pride, pride is a definite, here's a great definition for it, it is a mindset and the pursuit of self. It's a lust. It's a desire to control and use all things to boast in self, to elevate and prop up and puff up self. Promoters of pride can be anything that has the self in front of it, things like self-esteem, self-recognition, self-confidence, self-righteousness, self-exaltation, self-pity, self-advancement. Now, that doesn't include self-denial, which is the antidote to our pride. But I don't want you to take my word for it that God hates this. Just take this small sampling of Scripture that confirms God's hatred. Proverbs chapter 6, 16 and 17 says, There are six things which the Lord hates. Seven which are an abomination to him. And the first one he mentioned is haughty eyes. That is vain or proud eyes. Psalm 101.5 says, David speaks for God and he says, The man of haughty looks and arrogant heart I will not endure. Psalm, or sorry, uh, Isaiah 2.11 says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then last, in Acts chapter 12, verse 23, it says that the angel of the Lord struck Herod so that he was eaten with worms and died because when he, he received applause from the people and he did not give the glory to God, but he took it for himself. Now, that's a sampling of what we find in Scripture. But then just take into consideration the second point, which I said why I'm talking about God's hate, is this is the, seems to be a key issue in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And chapter 131, therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love 
builds up. A famous one. 1 Corinthians 13.4 Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, I will all the more gladly boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Friends, when we see that God hates human pride, our natural response should be to ask why. Why is it that God hates pride? Why is it that He hates our human pride? Does He not like us? Does He not want to build us up? Why does He hate pride? And I think to properly understand where God's hatred of human pride comes from, we first must go back, way back, to look at where it all started. Many of you already know about original sin. And you know how in Genesis chapter 1-3, through we're told that the first man and woman ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and how it was the only tree in the paradise garden that God said, you shall not eat. In fact, it was probably the only prohibition that God gave them. And you also know that before Adam and Eve disobeyed and rebelled against God, they knew Him only as a father of joyful permission. God who overwhelmingly said yes to them. So, why then did they eat the one thing that God said no to? Well, in part, it was because the serpent told them that God, who said yes so often and so much, was actually tricking them and misleading them about His one no. Never mind that God, not the serpent, had created the whole glorious world they inhabited by His powerful Word. Never mind that God, not the serpent, had provided to them personally life and breath and everything. And never mind that up to that point, God, not the serpent, had been a reliable and wonderful guide and, tr- and that trusting Him had resulted only in their experience of profound happiness. Never mind that in fact, God, by even placing the forbidden fruits, tree, uh, the tree's fruit within their reach, not the serpent, He was granting them the choice to trust Him or not, to accept His wisdom and His authority or not, to love Him supremely or not. You see, friends, the serpent told them that God was hiding something from them. He said it was something good that God didn't want them to have because it would make them like Him, nearly divine. He said it was something that would free them from the constant dependency on God and empower them to think for themselves. Something that would surely not kill them, but really, really make them alive. But instead of trusting God's Word, they believed the lie of the devilish snake, and they they leaned on their own understanding, and they pursued themselves over God. And so God was true to His Word like He always is. The fruit did yield Knowledge, as both their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Genesis 3, 7. But the serpent, he was also true to his word. Or, sorry, he wasn't true to his word, which is his characteristic. The knowledge did not make them godlike. It only made them miserable. And immediately, they experienced dark enlightenment and shame. Listen to how Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, when he says, For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Did you notice that it said they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him? In other words, they began boasting. They began, uh, they, they stopped glorifying him, praising him, thanking him, and started boasting in anything and everything except their creator. They exchanged the glory of God for the, the things of this world, the things that God has made. Very quickly, Adam and Eve discovered the tragic truth from Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And friends, all of us, each and every one of us, has been laboring under this crushing weight of the pursuit of self over God ever since. You see, we were made to boast. We were made to boast in God. We were made to give Him all the glory, all the credit. We were made to rely on Him and His wisdom and His power. We were made to magnify Him and to make much of His great name. And yet we don't. And This is why God is at war with human pride and why He does not permit us to know Him, as our text will say, through pride, or as uh, more specifically in our text, through human wisdom. And each of us must come to Him on His terms, not ours. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering, how do I become one? Where, where do I even start? Well, you begin, as it's been said, by realizing that you will never find out how, find out how much God is until you realize how much you are not. Uh, there's a story <clears throat> of a Salvation Army leader who, on his deathbed, gave this following testimony and quote, he said, I deserve to be damned. I deserve to be in hell. But God interfered. If you're a Christian, that's your story. That's your story too. It's a story that humbles us and exalts God. In our passage what Paul begins to do for the Corinthian church here is he lays out two arguments with Old Testament support. He's appealing to them, urging them to turn away from their pride, which is blinding them and causing them to be defensive and divisive. Let's look at the first point. comes in the first argument there in 18 through 25, and we see that pride obscures the gospel message. Pride obscures the gospel message. It says, for the word of the cross, it's another way to say the gospel, the good news, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And it goes on to say that the Jews didn't believe it. The Greeks didn't believe it. It was a stumbling block to them. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is essentially saying, so you think the gospel 
The, the, the word of the cross is a form of wisdom? That's just foolish pride talking. Look at its message. A crucified Messiah. Only God is wise as to be so foolish to bring that message. A crucified chosen one. Somebody who would die. He said, for the word of the cross is folly. And by word of the cross, I should say that Paul has in mind all of God's promises, plans, and provisions for man's redemption. Not just the specific event in Jesus' life. In the gospel's fullest sense, it is God's total revelation because the crucified Messiah is the center of the revealed word. If you are new to the Bible, new to the Christian message, you should know that the Bible is not merely just a collection of stories, rather it's one story told in multiple forms. I like how one guy said it's kind of like different radio stations. You've got jazz and you've got pop and you've got rock, but they're all singing about the exact same thing. They're all singing about this climax, Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection and what God has done to save and redeem and to undo what was done in the garden. At the heart of the Bible is Jesus. It's the heart of redemption, the good news that Christians have been rallying around and its message and its purpose and its timing, it stands in absolute uncompromising as an un, sorry, as an absolute uncompromising contradiction to the way that we merely think and do things as humans. It doesn't fit into our natural understanding. You see, no one was looking for the one true God to be incarnate, that is to be flesh and blood, to bear our sins as a substitute by dying the bloody, humiliating, shameful death of an outcast traitor. No one in their natural right mind would make a Roman execution on a cross the heart and soul of their message. No one. You see, we, we walk around with the Christian message, and for us, for many of us, especially those of us who've grown up in the Bible Belt, it just makes sense. We, we wear the cross around our neck. But in their day, it would be like us wearing a, a, an, electric, um, an electrocution chair around our neck. Why would you make that the center theme of your message? No one would do that. So when the church began peddling this message, both the Jews and the Gentiles, they were scandalized by it. To which Paul says, that's because the message flies uh, in the face of the pride of those who are perishing. Verse 18. The gospel work is a, is a dividing work. Not into Jews and Gentiles, although those categories I think still exist, but into believers and unbelievers. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The truth of the matter is that all of us are either in the process of being saved or being destroyed by God. There's nothing else. No middle position. No neutral position. No lukewarm. And so friends, I would say that what you believe about Jesus, the crucified Messiah, determines your position before a holy God. It is either saved to eternal life or eternal death. And by death, the Bible doesn't mean you just cease to exist. No, it means forever constant 
punishment in hell away from the good grace and mercy of God. There is simply no way that Christ crucified could fit into the mere human understanding either of God or of the Scriptures. And this is why Paul reveals in verse 23 that it is a matter of pride or a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, the Jews, during the Roman times, they did not crucify. They, they, they didn't crucify to put them to death, but they would hang them on a tree afterwards those who had been stoned, especially blasphemers and idolaters, they, they thought it was the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21-23, which says, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And, and I think this helps explain the Apostle Paul's deep outrage against Christ and his message prior to his conversion. He was infuriated that his fellow Jews would honor as one, honor as God, one whom God Himself had obviously cursed by having Him hanged on a tree. And what did the Gentiles think of it? Well, I'll just put it this way. A well-known graffito artist in Rome depicted a Christian worshiper with the body of a man and the head of a donkey standing before a crucified figure. To them, it was utter foolishness to believe in such a thing. They believed in power, not weakness. And so Paul points out to the Corinthians with this Old Testament phrase saying, don't you see? The cross of Christ will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. God says, I will thwart. Jesus' death on the cross is God bringing to an end human wisdom, and self-sufficiency. It's actually God undoing what was done in the garden and God doing exactly what He said He would do. In verse 12 of chapter 1, we see that people are lining up behind their favorite teachers and they're, and they're boasting about it. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow that guy. And it's ruining their souls, Paul's telling them. And it's tearing the fabric of their church community. And it's robbing God of His glory. And that's exactly what pride does. It looks for accomplishments that we can claim as ours. Look what we did. Look how great we are. Look at my physical appearance. It's just awesome. Look at my lungs. They can run for miles. Look at me. I'm the captain of the team. Look at my intelligence. An A average student. I have a, an advanced degree. I published an article. I won the Merit Scholar. I, I have investment and business savvy. Just look at my books. I have the ability to win Trivial Pursuit. Or maybe it's an association like it was with the Corinthians. My favorite sports team. I identify with them. It's my alma mater. It's the company I work with. It's the friends that I keep. Or even, it's my religion. Or my particular denomination. Or a movement in the Christian life. Or my local church. Look at what I associate with. The problem isn't that we boast. Remember, we're created to boast. We love to boast. The problem is we just don't love to boast in God. 
Well, at least not when the circumstances of my life aren't going according to my plans. A lot of times we'll boast in God when things are going according to plan. Did you see what God did? What about when it's not going according to your plan? What about when sickness, cancer, criticism come into your life? We boast in those weaknesses so that the power of God may be displayed in our lives. We also see churches doing this, don't we? Pointing out and highlighting their building programs, their music styles, how much they give and what they give to and how many they baptized. Churches must regularly work to humble themselves. And when things are going well, it's all the more cause for humility, not pride, because they understand that God is behind it, that He is the one doing it. He is the one doing the work. And that's the goal of our gatherings here. They must always be about humbling ourselves and exalting Christ. And we do that week after week after week by preaching and proclaiming and singing about the crucified Messiah. The gospel isn't beautiful to those who don't know they need it. But to us, to those of us who are being saved, to those of us who claim the name of Christ, we can't help but sing about it. We can't help but boast in it. We love it. And we'll continue to love it for all eternity. We boast in it. The definite plan and wisdom of God to have His Son drink the cup of wrath by dying the death He didn't deserve in the place of Hopeless, undeserving, dirty, sinful, guilty, rebellious, and corrupt men and women is indeed the most awesome and glorious act of love and grace that there is and ever will be. And no one chooses to believe and to treasure God's gospel apart from His grace. No one. And that's what Paul goes into next in his next argument. In his good southern accent, he says, Y'all... Take a good look in the mirror. What do you have to boast in? Who in the name of mere human wisdom would have chosen you to be the new people of God? So look at verse 26 through 31. Next point is pride obscures the source of human salvation. Pride obscures the source of human salvation. Verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you underline your Bible. I love that phrase. You can underline that. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. By worldly standards, the Corinthian church membership wasn't comprised of beautiful people. They had very few famous, wealthy, highly educated, powerful, 
or influential people when they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was likely that when they became Christians, they actually lost a great deal of prestige, influence, and and probably their income. So Paul is doing something here. He's reminding them that the gospel is is for those who have nothing to offer the king. It's for those who are lowly and despised by the world's standards. Salvation, or as Jesus said, the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God, is for the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, those who are pure in heart and humbly trust and obey. So four times here we see this this phrase, the calling, or God chose. In these six verses, they just jump off the page, and it's the language of election. Love it or hate it, but it's here. And it refers to the the saving call of God, the, the effectual or the successful call of God. You see, friends, Jesus' death and His resurrection didn't just accomplish the possibility. Rather, it actually accomplished the full salvation for God's elect. The people He chose in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us. So Jesus' blood actually did something. It secured and guaranteed and purchased and obtained the new covenant. The new covenant in His blood was not just that God would make faith and forgiveness possible, but that He would make it certain for His people. That's why it's new and different from the old covenant. It's because it cannot fail. Because God accomplishes it, He makes it certain from start to finish. Those whom He calls, He also justifies. Those whom He justifies, He glorifies. From beginning to end, God makes it certain that this will happen because He chose. So Paul tells them, you know what sort of persons you were when God called you? And you know that He did not accept you because you were smarter, wealthier, stronger, or had more to offer Him than others? Essentially, he's saying this, and I'll ask you, what is it, what it, I want you to ask yourself, rather, what is it about me that pleased God enough to rescue me? Maybe you should ask yourself this question, too. Why is it that God saved me and not the other guy? What is it in you, Paul's saying? What is it that you have to offer God? What can you boast in, in and of yourself? If salvation is by God's grace alone, then it must be completely dependent on God's action alone. If salvation is by the grace that purchased our pardon by Christ dying on the cross, then it's clear that salvation of any of us is owing only to God's choice, to His election. It's because God chose us that He purchased and secures our redemption at the cross. You see, it was designed by God that way to drive us to humility, as verse 29 says. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one is going to stand before God when we get there and say, I made it. I did it. 
We're going to say thank you and praise you. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. That's what we're going to say. We're not going to, no one is going to boast in his presence. God is going to get all the glory for all eternity. And that's what the doctrine of election does. It causes us to stop boasting in ourselves, our goodness, our works, our accomplishments, our righteousness, our worthiness. It causes us to boast in God. And that's why Paul brings up Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 in verse 31 when he says, Thus says the Lord, it says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and righteousness. Steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the, the Lord. All the benefits and the blessings that we as Christians have, as it said there, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption are because of Him. God gets all the credit. Your salvation is not of your own doing. As Jonah 2.9 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. I love the way the position that the, the great London Baptist preachers Charles Spurgeon takes when he says, I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for some reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should, love, should have looked upon me with such special love. Friends, I want to close. So we look at these two arguments that Paul is bringing forth about where's our boasting. I want to close by drawing your attention to a verse that's just a little outside of our text this morning. That's, that's verse 5 of chapter 2. And I think uh, it serves us to give the whole why behind this argument. Why does it even matter? Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. It says, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The genuineness of faith, and with it, eternal life, is at stake here. Paul's saying there is a kind of foundation. There is a kind of rest that our pride makes us think it's solid, but it will actually destroy the superstructure of our faith. And that's why it's so crucial for our faith, not to rest in ourselves, but in the power of God. Because if it rests in ourselves or anything other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it is a mirage. It is bogus faith. The only true faith is the faith that leads to the praise of His glorious grace. That's what faith leads to. If there's any hint of self-exaltation, self-sufficiency, and human effort it will not have the power to save you from a guilty verdict on the day of judgment. If you want to know whether your faith is genuine, all you need to look at is what you're boasting in. Look at the things that are your justification. The things that you say, man, that really validates me. Man, that really gives me hope. 
That makes me feel worthy. Friends, what are you boasting in? May it now and forever always be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray.